When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today, a member of the, of the Electoral College, representing the certified winner, cast their votes for president and vice president of the United States in an act just as old as our nation itself. And once again, <clears throat> the American, in America, the rule of law, our Constitution, and the will of the people prevailed. The truth, the straight skinny, if you will, is staring us in the face. It may not be what President Trump and his supporters wanted, but Joe Biden and Kamala Harris received more votes than any ticket in American history. As of this morning, our country has officially a president-elect and a vice president-elect. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. One of the preoccupations over the last nearly five years of this beleaguered radio show has been cheating. The White Sox, Lance Armstrong, the Sochi Olympics, the Patriots with their flaccid footballs, the Houston Astros with their signed larceny, that woman who won the marathon by taking the subway. Oh, and there's also Donald Trump. He cheats at golf on taxes on his wives, on his poll numbers. He cheats on his health reports, cheats on the SAT, cheats to dodge the draft, cheats to get loans, cheats his workers, cheats at hair color, cheats at his complexion, cheats with long ties to make himself look taller, and of course, cheats, 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 and never stops cheating at elections. How did we become a culture that countenances cheating? I wonder if I've told this story before, and if so, I'm going to repeat it like a batty old grandpa. So hit that quick fast forward if you got to miss it. It's about Virgil Griffith, a high-profile hacker and friend of Julian Assange that I met and profiled years ago. Virgil taught me the story of all hackers. As a kid, he used to play a primitive Star Wars game where he said he was trying to beat the Death Star. Virgil worked at this game day and night until he stumbled on a way to copy his X-Wing fighters so he could have 10 or 100 rather than the standard two. He did that, he won and won and won, he didn't beat the Death Star, he beat the whole game. For a teenager, this is tops. And from then on, he decided that cheating is not just the only way to go, but the highest form of gameplay. Only mortals don't use steroids or workarounds or hacks or deflated footballs. That's what you have to do to win. I should add as a little coda that Virgil Griffith was arrested for selling secrets to North Korea and is now in prison somewhere, so I know how to pick him. Anyway, I get this phrase, that's what you have to do to win, from my guest today. Early in 2019, he spoke in Congress about Trump and cheating. He dutifully went through everything the Trump campaign had done that's beyond the moral pale in the name of winning the election. Is cheating to win really winning? That's the question. And why some of us put a baseball-like asterisk next to the words President Trump. Anyway, my guest ran through the Trump campaign cheats, and his Republican colleagues never disagreed with him on the facts. Trump had indeed cheated. He, my guest, then said he thought it was wrong to cheat. This time, the Republicans would not agree with him. 
They would not agree that it's wrong to cheat. Trump cheated, but it's not wrong. I don't think it's okay, said my guest, Congressman Adam Schiff. But they, he said, alluding to the Trump campaign and his Republican colleagues, think this is just what you have to do to win. Today, California Congressman Adam Schiff of Burbank and of the impeachment fame is joining me to talk about cheating, his warped Republican colleagues and what the hell happened to them, and much more. It is my great pleasure to have him back. Welcome to Trumpcast, Congressman. It's good to be with you. It's just great to have you. And as we wind down the show, I keep wanting to use the word denouement. You are the perfect guest for the end of the waning days of Trumpcast. <laughs> and you've just been, you know, kind of from the minute, what, from 2016, you've been alert to the possibilities of cheating in elections and kind of cheating more broadly, doing the things that you say are just not okay. It's like obscenity, right? Like the Potter Stewart obscenity law. You know cheating when you see it. He said he knew obscenity when he saw it. And I want to talk to you about these not okay things that have happened um, since 2016 um, that, you know, up to and including the impeachment, you've been sort of at the forefront of calling out. Maybe you can walk us through those four years of cheating. Well, you know, when I think about the last four years, you know, among the other things that really comes to mind is the degree to which we lost our civility. We lost a lot of the decency at the heart of the country. For better or for ill, the President of the United States has a huge capacity to set the tone in a country. Uh, and he set a tone of truth isn't truth. Uh, make your own facts Decency doesn't matter. Decency is for losers, that doing anything to win is justified. In fact, it would be, you know, heretical to think otherwise. That's the kind of mentality he brought into the office. And it was a kind of mentality shared by the people around him. Mm -hmm. And of course, even worse, uh, you know, appeals to bigotry. This was the first president in my lifetime who got up in the morning determined to find new and better ways to divide us rather than ways to make us a more perfect union. And I think it infused much of our society. Mm -hmm. You know, my kids are fairly grown. I've got one in high school and one who just graduated college. But I shudder to think about, you know, families with younger children and what message they've received from this president about, you know, whether right makes any difference anymore, whether the truth matters. And so, you know, I think that at many levels in our society, from the presidency on down, uh, we've seen a real assault on on truth and on right and on decency, and it's you know reflected in the college cheating scandals and yeah. and other facets of our life. It's been very interesting to see how Operation Varsity Blues. I just like the name of it, but the one that turned up cheating in the college admissions process. And then, of course, the Me Too movement with most notably the prosecution and imprisonment of Harvey Weinstein were a kind of proxy and, and even practice for kind of finishing finishing this chapter, I think, with Donald Trump. And it's taken longer, although it's hard to say what the numbers are, but it's taken longer to find, censure, and expose as wrong things like the behavior of Harvey Weinstein. We just didn't have a the right kind of framework for thinking about what Weinstein was doing wrong or what college admissions cheating was. You know, increasingly, and you probably get requests, but I get requests for just good friends of mine to help me write their kids' essays 
admission essays to college. And that's on the border, right? Or maybe it's fine. If you help a little too much, it could be wrong. But I think every American has been making these decisions about taxes, about marriage vows, about getting out of the draft, about how to get into college, about how to inflate your resume or not. And we've just been pushing the limits of this for a long time until finally we saw someone like Trump who said, yes, I don't pay taxes, and that makes me smart. And I feel like suddenly hacking became gameplay and this was, all bets were off. Of course, you'd take the meeting with the Russians. Of course, you'd have your father to pay to get you into Harvard like Jared Kushner. Of course, you'd pay your sister to take the SATs, as Donald Trump is said to have done. And that is, I think, culturally a dangerous place for us to be because it sets up a kind of nihilism. And clearly, to restore the heart of America, if that's what really Biden means to do, is making that all wrong again. I think that's exactly right. I have been struck in watching the president, how much there's a sense when he speaks of, uh, this is the way everyone operates. Mm -hmm. Uh, Everyone is as corrupt as he is. And the only people who differ are those uh, who are equally corrupt, but just hypocrites about it. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's not unlike unlike Vladimir Putin's worldview. Mm -hmm. Putin's worldview is that there is no such thing as democracy. It's all autocracy. There isn't a world between autocrats and and, uh, Democrats, uh, you know, little d Democrats. Uh, There's a world of autocrats and hypocrites. Mm -hmm. And the Americans are hypocrites. Uh, And interestingly, that's a narrative that Donald Trump espouses as well. Uh, When Trump was asked uh, early in his presidency by Sean Hannity, of all people, why can't you criticize Vladimir Putin. The man is a killer. You seem to criticize everyone else. And Trump's answer was, are we so different? Um, And I think that, you know, in Trump's worldview, everyone is as as corrupt as he is. Everyone is as immoral as he is. You know, the rest are merely hypocrites. And part of his sense of aggrievement is that he feels everybody does it. And why are they going after him? me. I'm just doing the same thing everyone else does. Hmm. And, you know, we've we've all met people like that in our lives who project onto others their own lack of morality. Uh, mm-hmm. but, uh, but, it, but it does have that destructive impact that you're talking about, uh, which is it, it normalizes wrongful behavior. I think one of the reasons why the it's not okay speech resonated with people is that there are millions of people around the country who've been watching the last four years and thinking, Am I crazy to think that this is just so wrong? Uh, have yeah. we complete, com- become completely unmoored from ideas of right and wrong? And does character not matter anymore? Yeah. I see this in the Congress with now 126 of my colleagues, people I thought more highly of four years ago, signing on to a brief that says they want to throw out the votes of tens of millions of Americans, even in elections in which they were reelected. Mm-hmm. Um, and knowing that it's false, knowing that it's a fraud, knowing that it's a lie, they're putting their name and their reputation and their place in history alongside that lie. And, uh, you know, it's stunning and obviously deeply destructive to the country. I mean, if I can't, uh, the the gaslighting that was begun to be repaired or, uh, you know, uh, ideally by those of us in the media, but by you and your Democratic colleagues with things like the it's not okay speech, that kind of gaslighting must have been still more acute for someone like you standing beside people you had worked with who must have seemed almost body snatched when they were suddenly standing with QAnon types, you know, that they, I mean, these are 
accomplished men and women who look sane on the outside and yet are are so adjacent to very Byzantine conspiracy theories that they might as well be the advocates for them and signing this document that I do think will go down in history as among the most disgraceful acts ever in a U.S. Congress. I mean, what was it like watching them, watching people turn like this? I think I proposed to you once that they're cognitively vulnerable. Maybe they don't know how to use Facebook and they really were, you know, kind of had their minds spun by QAnon stuff. Or maybe they just, as other people have proposed, hated Obama for the eight years out of racism and out of a desire to own the libs. And that just went to their heads. Uh, You know, I don't know. Is there any way to explain them? Well, you know, I think looking at my colleagues in the Congress, there are a number of explanations that differ in different degrees with different members. But I think most predominantly, it's a function of a lack of courage and elevation of power and ambition over any other attribute, any other value. My colleagues largely recognize that Donald Trump is a liar, uh, that he he tells falsehoods every day. They can see that. It's not, uh, I don't think they they drank the Kool-Aid in the sense that now they think that these things are suddenly true because the president is saying, and they recognize the falsehoods. Okay. They recognize how much damage he's doing to the country and their party, but they're just not willing to stand up to him. They don't want a primary challenge. They don't want angry tweets. They don't want Tucker Carlson uh, heckling them. And uh, I frankly had thought more highly of them. I had thought they were made of sterner stuff. I thought that uh, that their ideology mattered to them. Mm-hmm. It turns out actually none of that mattered. Uh, the only thing that mattered was perpetuation office. You know, Devin Nunes, you know, before the Trump administration and I had a very good working relationship, mm-hmm. uh, a very friendly, cordial, civil working relationship. He was not ideological. He was what I would call a John Boehner country club Republican. My mm-hmm. favorite Devin Nunes quote with reference to the Tea Party was their lemmings with suicide vests. That's what he once said of the Tea Party. Well, wow. you know, the, the, Wait, Other, so they're not you know, only the, jumping over the cliff, they also have explosives strapped to them? Yes, yes. <laughs> wow. It, it, well, well, wittier than I expected from him. But I, yes. You know, I love that imagery. And, <laughs> yeah. uh, but, uh, you know, tragically, he's become one of those you know, lemmings with a suicide vest mm-hmm. uh, jumping over the Trump cliff. And I would not have anticipated that. Now, I think the reasons in his case are different than some of the others. Uh, I think that when the Midnight Run was exposed as a charade, and there was so much discredit brought down on him. I think that had a had a catalytic impact on his worldview. Mm-hmm. But others, you know, are more of an illustration of the phenomenon that that while uh, courage is contagious, so is cowardice. And mm-hmm. because no one was speaking out, no one was speaking out. You know, I, I'm often asked, you know, do, do your colleagues really believe this? What do they say to you in private? Is it possible they really believe the stuff they're saying or the stuff the president is saying? And I think the, the long and the short of it is most of them don't. Hmm. And they they do their best to hide. Mm-hmm. If they can avoid answering, they will avoid answering. Yeah. When put on the spot, though, they will tow the Trumpian line. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how they explain that to their kids and grandkids. I just don't. The point about 
the fear of the president's tweets of Tucker Carlson and possibly even of kind of death threats. You know, Joe Walsh has been on this show before. He's obviously not in office now, but, um, you know, he's had this uh, some anguish around leaving the Republican Party, breaking with Trump. He even ran, ran for office this year. And I think he was standing in line at a rally uh, for Trump just talking to people. And he said, do you think the president has ever lied? And all of them said no. So that was the time that he realized I'm done. You know, I, I, I don't, I can't be a Trumpite. I can't be a Republican. I can't, I can't run for office in this climate. But Which, which case, is amazing because he was no shrinking uh, wallflower as an no. arch conservative. <laughs> I remember, no. uh, I remember doing an interview and, you know, the cameras are set up next to each other and I'm on, I guess, CNN and he's on MSNBC next to me. And I'm trying to listen to, I'm trying to listen to Chris Matthews so I can answer his questions. And, and uh, Walsh is just shouting at the camera. Uh, actually, he was talking to Chris Matthews, just shouting at Chris Matthews. And I'm trying to listen to to uh, CNN and, and I can barely hear myself think. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, right, exactly. So this isn't someone who, you know, he should have been able to like get his voice heard, stand up to Trump, build a coalition, you know, but instead he just looked at the, and you know, he's not above just swearing. I mean, he looked at the Trumpites and just said the thing that the media will never say, which is like fucking idiots, you know, but you know, he did that. The, the never Trumpers um, have done what they did. And, and Justin Amash, your colleague did the right thing, supported the impeachment, and also has condemned Trump in stern terms and changed parties. Now it's true that not a lot of people in office have done this. Not enough in office have done that. But well, one, one, one thing that Trump did very effectively is he punished people who stepped an inch out of line um, mm-hmm. and pu- punished them very disproportionately, and that really deterred others. When Mark Sanford uh, demonstrated just some independence, the president and, and allies uh, uh, ginned up a primary challenge and took him out. Mm-hmm. Uh, Justin Amash was forced to leave the party. Yeah. When Francis Rooney, a very moderate Republican, made you know very mild comments about how these were serious allegations involving the president in Ukraine and that uh, you know when he was sitting in on the depositions that we were conducting, they were conducted pretty fairly. The next day, he was forced to announce that he was going to retire from Congress, which made it all the more ironic when during the impeachment trial, uh, I referred to a CBS story that cited a Republican sources saying that if Republicans stood up to the president uh, or voted against the president, they would have their heads on pikes. There was all this faux outrage. How could you suggest the president might be vindictive? (laughs) That the way the umbrage works all ways, it just comes from all sides, is always astonishing. They do do a racist thing, get called racist, and suddenly they are, you know, up in arms because in high dudgeon because it's so offensive to be called a racist. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and six one since that matters. And what do I even say other than hey? Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. 
I want to talk about hazing because you mentioned this thing about appearing on Tucker Carlson and or having your name mentioned in a tweet as being a deterrent to any kind of dissent from the president. And I think that's partly what you mean about punishing, you know, the kind of like very terrifying heat he brought on Maria Yovanovitch or on Alexander Vindman. And then, you know, I was thinking of Republicans like Bob Corker. And I bring up Joe Walsh because he's in the death threat seat with the Trumpites now, the same way you are, honestly. And, you know, your staff needs security and Nancy Pelosi and her staff need security. This is not, this hazing is not a joke. And as much as we try, you know, all of us try to let tweets roll off us and all the people that Trump has injured with his tweets try to get, I'm sure you try to get alligator skin when he was like, misspelling your name crudely or calling you little or whatever. And Bob Corker, also little Bob Corker. I feel like it's a badge of honor now. Parenthetically, he's never referred to Putin, who's shorter than you and Corker, as little <laughs> Vladimir Putin. Just just saying. One of those just saying. But in any case, you know, we're all grownups. We can handle it. But I sometimes think that, you know, even Robert Mueller even, uh, you know, even you, even um, Maria Ivanovich, you know, these are scary. This is the guy controlling the nuclear arsenal and talking in savage ad hominem attacks. And then also having people who are armed make threats, some in some cases, on your lives. And I think that has been a very strange feature of this administration, that when we're asking ourselves, why does Lindsey Graham do what he does? Why do the Republicans in Congress do what they do? Part of it is, if you don't stand foursquare with Trump, as uh, as I think Jeff Flake put it, you're in trouble. Well, you know, it, it is at one one level deeply shocking to see what the president says and does and how he really encourages disorder, chaos, and provokes violence uh, with his his rhetoric. But at the same time, after four years of it, it can no longer surprise us. Yeah. But, you know, when you step back from it and you think the governor of one of our states was a subject of a plot, a kidnapping and murder plot, uh, the electors of that state couldn't gather uh, in a public place because of death threats. Uh, and what's the president's reaction is just to s- stir the pot more, to attack the victim, the, attack the governor who's the subject of the mm-hmm. plot, mm-hmm. when... Now, Georgia elections officials spoke out so passionately about it's got to stop and enough already, and they're threatening even young staff people. Uh, you know, I was glad to hear him say it, but at the same time, it shouldn't have taken so long. He shouldn't have had to wait until it happened to him or his staff because it's been happening to lots of other people for a very long time. Yeah. You know, when, uh, uh, you know, the president started, uh, you know, using rhetoric with me, something needs to happen to him. Um, mm-hmm. Or, you know, uh, he's a traitor and there used to be a way we treat traitors and that kind of thing. You know, those words reach millions of people and some of the people they reach are not well. Yeah. And, you know, we've seen some of those not well people take matters into their own hands, mm-hmm. going mm-hmm. to a pizza parlor in Washington, D.C. with a rifle because they thought there was a child sex predator ring in the basement of a pizza parlor that had no basement. Charlottesville and all the white nationalist terrorism that has involved yeah. Trump. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, it's really been uh, open season for hatred. And it's going to take a long time to mitigate that. I I do think, and I'm watching again, Joe Biden's speech from yesterday, he's really the right person for this hour. Yeah, Uh, there's something so decent about him, so reassuring about him. 
so uh, calming and so in character for him to try to appeal to our better angels. He is, you know, the right antidote for for the poison that Donald Trump has been feeding the country for four years. Yeah, he, I was thinking when you were saying that Trump sees hypocrisy in in democracy, sees hypocrisy in decency, you know, sees hypocrisy in in moral principle. Um, it didn't get a lot of attention, but I, I don't know if you remember in the first debate and second debate, sorry, Biden addressed the camera as he'd done in the first debate to talk about, you know, human issues, kitchen table issues and the issues in of COVID that's brought on all our families, including yours and mine. And that time Trump was ready for it to happen. And he said, oh, look at you, like so, almost sneeringly did an impression of him sounding like a politician. And I thought, Biden makes the most just grounded, decent, you know, any man, every man around the Thanksgiving table gesture. And it's even that is Trump just savages. You know, there's no there's no major chord. There's no place to land on just I am concerned about your families that have someone missing at the holidays. And, you know, when he blew that up, I thought, you know, that's. I, I don't know. I, I There was something incredibly painful about that. You know, you're absolutely right. And I think it stems from the fact that Trump has no empathy. Um, yeah. And when he sees displays of empathy, they ring false to him because he can't, he can't understand it. Uh, he can't appreciate yeah. it. It must be put on because he doesn't feel that way. Uh, yeah. We've never seen him with 300,000 dead. We have never seen him really uh, show any sign of appreciation for the magnitude of that loss and the suffering that has touched every family now. There's never been an appreciation for that. And uh, it's only viewed through the prism of, did it help him get reelected? Did it hurt him get reelected? Is it going to be used against him? You know, what what happened to these families, he could care less. Uh, And so he finds it obviously very difficult to understand Anybody who could care about such things. Yeah, which it turns out is at least 80 million Americans, the ones that (laughs) voted for Joe Biden. I mean, I keep trying to emphasize as this show is blessedly coming to an end that it's been, you know, in some ways that it's been the worst of times, but the last year has had some really bright moments, the, the, the brightest of which was the presidential election. And somehow, you know, this Republican friend of mine was saying, you Democrats need to know how to win, that we should be walking around, spiking the football, gloating, looking like, uh, looking like, I think he said, looking like football hooligans a little bit, just a little bit. We don't have to be so classy. We should, you know, we should say like, we won. And, you know, obviously there's a long way to go. Obviously there's a lot of damage to correct. But our coalition of 80 million extremely class diverse, racially diverse, uh, you know, across so many lines, across so many state lines decided, you know, it's not okay. What Trump did was not okay. And I think that signing on to just that simple statement was what brought us together. In other times, this would be like Obama's election. But it, but now it's just he has us, Trump has us on tenterhooks so much that it's like, we, we, we don't want to even with the boot off our throat or seemingly off our throat, we don't want to relax yet. That's evidence that of that's some of the damage he's done. I think that's some of the damage he's done, you know? Uh, 
Yeah, I, I agree completely. I was really struck in listening to the vice president uh, yesterday. Here he wins this very sizable electoral college victory, uh, yeah. what Trump had called four years ago a landslide. He wins the largest popular vote in history. And what does he need to do during his 15 minutes of talking about this milestone is he needs to explain that the election wasn't rigged. Um, what, what an extraordinary circumstance where that would be even necessary. And no other time in history would that have been necessary, even after Bush v. Gore. Um, yeah. You know, you didn't hear George W. Bush have to give a length, lengthy excursion about why he really won. Uh, and that, of course, was a much more legitimately close and contested result uh, where the Supreme Court interfered with a recount that may have changed the result uh, in a single state. But you're right. I, I think that part of the reason why we haven't had that moment is the election night itself was drawn out uh, for several days as we waited for the votes to come in in Arizona yeah. and uh, in Georgia and in Florida and elsewhere. There was never a, a single point where you could say, OK, it's now final resolve because the president was out there continuing to contest it. And so I, I think the the opportunity to have that moment that your friend was talking about where we're, you, know, you spike the football and say, we won. Yeah. Um, I don't I, I think will take place, but I think it will take place on Inauguration Day when Donald Trump is ushered or dragged or pulled, kicking and screaming out of the White House. Um, and, you know, the, the reason he will probably not attend and fly off in that helicopter is there'll be such tremendous applause when he flies off, but not for the reason you might applaud a, a president saying farewell. Yeah, that's right. Right. Exactly. It's like, it, I don't know. Do you remember years and years ago when um, when Bill Clinton said in conclusion at one of the nominating uh, DNCs yes. and everyone cheered because he was finally going to shut up. I think it'll be, I think in conclusion will be the most applauded line in, in, in kind of Trump history also. So there seem to be two ways of thinking about the post-Trump period. One is to um, provide lots of off-ramps for his supporters, both culturally with his base and in Congress. You know, when you sit down next with, with a Devin Nunes or one of your other colleagues to sort of make it so that he can save face, right, as he kind of comes back to the table and don't bring up QAnon and don't do this and that and kind of try to get things back to normal. I do shudder when I think about Biden glad-handing with, you know, his old colleague Mitch McConnell and just kind of saying, like, let's just pretend that never happened. But there's some upsides to it. And, you know, there's a column in The Washington Post today about how Biden should give Trump uh, credit for the vaccine, as if that kind of appeasement you know, like, you know, Hitlerian peace in our time appeasement is the way to go. I clearly don't think it is. But then and then there's the, you know, idea that Biden's Department of Justice should just bring the hammer down right and left on every on Trump and on everyone else who and and neglect his self-pardon or whatever he decides to pretend he has and just prosecute him and his people and his family as far as they can go. I have to say, I think there's well, I have my own take on this, but uh, you know, we've heard from Jack Goldsmith, who argues that it's not wise to prosecute him for many reasons, and Bob Bauer, who says, "Hell yeah, prosecute him." You know, and that otherwise we have a president who is, as you would say, firmly above the law and in perpetuity above the law, and we can't have that. So, in the Goldsmith Bauer showdown, where do you stand? 
well, first of all, I think the the idea of you know give Trump credit for this or that, and maybe he can be appeased as a fool's errand. Mm. Uh, I don't think he should be given credit for anything in which credit is not due. And I think he's done nothing but, uh, for the most part, hurt uh, our COVID response. Uh, and even when the vaccine was on the eve of approving uh, of, of approval. Uh, what did he do but go in and, and politicize the approval and say, mm-hmm. essentially, you better prove it uh, within 24 hours uh, if that reporting is correct or you're fired? Um, that just diminished confidence in the vaccine. But, you know, the, the, the role that he had, uh, frankly, was not in developing, you know, the science behind the vaccine uh, or, or supporting the scientists' work. His role was to create public confidence in the product. So that people would agree to be vaccinated, and that he has singularly failed and misserved the public. But, but in any event, on the broader question, the 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 Goldsmith Bauer uh, continuum, mm-hmm. I, you know, I would say that you probably can't answer that question in a global way. Uh, mm-hmm. It's going to require you to look case by case at the seriousness of, al- of the allegations. Uh, and weigh the seriousness of the allegations of any misconduct by either Donald Trump or people around him with the imperative of also moving forward uh, as a country uh, and healing. And, you know, where the the allegations are sufficiently serious, then you need to move forward with them. Or you do create that incentive uh, for future presidents to engage in misconduct, thinking that, well, they'll either always be pardoned or the subsequent president will always make the decisions in the country's best interest to move on. Mm -hmm. But I also don't think that the President-elect or their uh, attorney general can ignore the need to heal, uh, yes. and so, so I, I think it will, you know, be a case-by-case uh, kind of determination. I mean, one one case in point, um, and I don't know how to evaluate this, but is uh, individual one the campaign mm-hmm. fraud scheme in which mm-hmm. the Justice Department said Michael Cohen needs to go to jail? Um, well, the indictment says that Michael Cohen was coordinated and directed in that fraud scheme by individual one. That's yeah. the president. Um, and so the Justice Department is going to have to decide if we argued that Michael Cohen, the one who was directed and coordinated, needs to go to jail. Then what about the guy who did the coordinating and directing? Yeah. You know, that's one of, I think, the, the more specific cases that the new Justice Department will have to wrestle with. But uh, but again, I, I think it will have to be done on a case by case basis. And uh, and I don't envy the difficulty of those decisions. Yeah, well, I hope that if prosecution does happen, and even if at the level of the states, that you and and Daniel Goldman are allowed at least to put in a word or two, because both of you did a did an excellent job prosecuting this administration and found plenty of ample evidence to indict during the impeachment. What about in Congress itself? Any kind of punitive approach to say. The, say the um, the Congress people who signed this overturn the election petition, and could they be stripped of committee assignments? Is that a possible way to you know there can't be just pure mercy without justice? And I think to get over for the constituents and for the American public and to be kind of shown that you don't just keep all your accolades and trophies once you've done something like sign that letter? Is that something you all would consider? I, you know, honestly, I think for my colleagues who signed the letter, the voters need to bring about the penalty for that kind of uh, violation of their oaths of office. Um, 
And, oh, so and it's street. all up to and, us again. It's all <laughs> well, <laughs> Thank you. you know, Pass the buck really, to the voter, just like you all did with the impeachment. It really, it really is uh, difficult for Congress to play that role. Um, I do think we have a very important role to play, and that is uh, to legislate reforms to protect against these abuses of power in, in the future. And working with the Speaker and my fellow chairs, uh, I introduced a very comprehensive package called the Protect Our Democracy Act uh, to uh, strengthen whistleblower protections and I, Inspector General protections and curb the abuse of the pardon power and enforce the Hatch Act and enforce the Emoluments Clause and expedite congressional subpoenas. I mean, all those kind of things Congress has the power to do. It's very much our responsibility and institutional interest to do. But in terms of our colleagues and their ignominious acts, they should answer to their voters into history for that. And much as I, I am repelled by what they did and what they may continue to do, uh, under our system, it's really the voters that have the last word on that. Well, thank you very much, Congressman. It always is ungaslighting to talk to you. I don't even <laughs> know if that's you. a phrase, but it does give me some sense that things might be, as you would say, okay. They will be. Thanks again for being here. You bet. Thank you. My guest has been Congressman Adam Schiff of California. And that's it for today's show. But before we go, I got to shout out a certain elite cadre of Trumpcast listeners who signed on to Slate Plus because they were fans of this show. Their names are Adrian Kelly from Only Maryland, Eric Kahan in Brooklyn, New York, Susan Pollard in St. Louis, Missouri, Ken Kabilski in Willoughby, Ohio, and Garth Rockcastle in Shell Lake, Wisconsin. Thanks all of you for listening, joining Slate Plus, and supporting our work. And that's it for today's show. What'd you think? Come find us on Twitter. I'm at page 88 and the show is at Real Trumpcast. It's sentimental, but I really do like meeting you all there. And while you're at it, join Slate Plus. It's just $35 for the first year. You get no ads on any of our podcasts and you support our work at Slate. Go to slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus. Our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan and engineered by Richard Stanislaw. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast.